We're going to look at fasting in the Old Testament, do a bit of an Old Testament survey from 50,000 feet. And a question might be asked, what is fasting? Uh, Friday night, my kids and I were snuggled up watching a movie and we put on Shrek, good old classic from back in the day. And uh, there's this scene where Princess Fiona is in the castle and, uh, you know, she's I don't know if she's faking or what, but she's pretending to be asleep and Shrek comes into the room and he's rescuing her from the dragon's castle and the dragon's fighting the donkey and all that, you know, and the castle's falling down in flames and, and he just pulls her up out of the bed and he starts running with her. Well, she's been preparing for this whole time to be rescued by true love's kiss and, you know, have some sort of magical princess moment. And there's an ogre with a helmet on just dragging her through the corridors, trying to escape. And she's trying to pull out information from this guy, like, What, you know, kingdom are you from? And, you know, where do you go to knighting school or whatever? All that stuff, you know. And uh, and she's not getting any information from him. And she kind of yanks on him and pulls him and says, Well, as a token of my gratitude, I give you this, you know, pink lacy hanky, you know. And he kind of looks at it and he's not sure what to do. And he snags it from her and then wipes the sweat off of his ogre face and throws it back at her, you know. And uh, it's just kind of this hilarious moment. And as I was reading and studying for the fast, I came across this phrase uh, by Tim Keller when he says, uh, disciples should fast as a token for their humility as they humble themselves before God. They are to fast as a token of their earnestness that they are deadly serious about the matters they're bringing to the Lord in prayer. And they should fast because they desire the Heavenly Father's blessings on their prayers and on their spiritual endeavors. So, little Shrek, little Tim Keller, combine them together, what do you get? Uh, You get that uh, fasting is essentially us holding up our token of gratitude to the Lord of all that he's done. We're holding up a token of our earnestness before him that I have got things in my life that I will not make it another day, another month, another year, unless you come in, God, and intervene by the power that I read about in the Bible. I need you in my life. I need you in my family. I need you in my relationships. I need you in my habits. I need you in my mind. And here's my token. And so fasting is kind of that pink frilly hanky, you know, that we hand to our hero and says, here's a token of my gratitude. Here's a symbol of how desperate I am. It's a demonstration of how much I need you. John Piper said, fasting is an expression of a longing for God with our hunger. And you know, every time I always joke about it, but we Rogers love to eat. I mean, I am putting down grub every chance I can get. And when I'm fasting, my stomach starts rumbling and it is expressing itself to the Lord in the sense that I'm reminded of my hunger. Normally I go to the food, but instead I'm going to prayer. And it's how I'm expressing to the Lord how I long for him. A a growl becomes a prayer. Fasting is denying the physical to seek the spiritual. It's saying I'm denying my physical food because God, I'm more hungry for you. In a musical sense, when you might transpose from the key of G to the key of E to make it easier to sing or have a different sound, in in fasting, we're transposing our physical longing and it's transposed into a spiritual key that unlocks doors. 
It's saying, just as I hunger, Lord, I'm hungry for you. Take my stomach and transpose it and make it a longer for you. And sometimes it's fasting alone when we can tell the Lord, Lord, I don't just say I live by the word of God alone. I'm proving it right now that I don't live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Chrysostom said, we fast to offer our entire selves to the dedication of spiritual things, having distanced ourselves from secular things. And so in fast, it's just a time of distancing ourselves from the stuff that normally consumes us or that we consume. Hall wrote that in fasting, man's digestive tract becomes a faith organ. All that God's created that goes on in here. And I don't know how many hundreds of yards are in this intestine that I've got here. You know, I didn't major in anatomy or anything, but it's just like all of this is now for all of him. All right. Um, Andrew Murray wrote a great book called With Christ in the School of Prayer. Years ago, we went through it at our prayer meeting. Chapter 13 is all about fasting, coupling fasting with our prayer. I'm going to kind of exhaust Andrew Murray today. Nay, maybe it's exhaust you by quoting Andrew Murray a bit, but um, I'll have it all on the screen. And in his book, he says that prayer is the hand with which we grab the spiritual realm And fasting is the other hand by which we let go of the physical. So it's just like ultra prayer where we're not being held back by anything back here. And we're just able to disconnect and attach to the Lord. He goes on to say, fasting helps to express and to deepen, to confirm the resolution that we are willing to sacrifice anything, to sacrifice ourselves to attain what we seek. For the kingdom of God. Now there's different types of fast that help us express that. It might be that partial fast where, um, you know, maybe you're, you're still eating some kind of food. In Daniel chapter one, you see that Daniel fasted from the king's delicacies. And so he didn't eat any of the, the wonderful meat that was being barbecued in pagan idol, idol worship of Babylon. You know, he instead uh, ate a veggie diet to sanctify himself from the paganism that was all around him. And, and so maybe it will be, man, with my schedule and my day and my medicines that I'm eating, I can, I can do veggies and fruits, or I can do juice, or I can do broth, you know, or in my partial diet, I can do, I can do morning and I can do noon, you know, and then after the evening session at the church, I'll come back and I'll eat something sensible, you know, that will help me with tomorrow's fasting. And so that would be kind of a partial fast. You have a a complete fast, which is uh, water only. And then you have a totally complete fast. Times you see this in scripture are when it's no water, uh, no food for pretty much a max of three days. Now, why in the world would anybody be crazy enough to do something like that? I don't know that I would say that they're crazy as much as I'd say they're desperate. There's desperation in what's going on in their life. Let me ask you, What's your marriage worth to you? What is that wayward child's soul and eternity worth to you? What is the salvation of your coworker worth to you? Or, you know, the, the saving of your business or whatever it may be, or, or our nation and, and the healing of our nation. What are these things worth 
to you, those are times where you say, man, I am really feeling the weight of what's going on in current events in my home, my church, my community, my life. And it's worth like giving it all to the Lord for three days. Talk to your doctor if you're going in, in that intensely, you've got to. Um, but there, those are some of the different types of fasting. Uh, most common amount of times we see fasting in the scriptures are kind of from uh, sunup to sundown. That's when the people would fast and then they would break that fast uh, in the evening times, in the night. Uh, and so perhaps as we come to this subject, uh, not many of us have considered it an integral part of our Christian experience. And I want to encourage you, man, it's time to like go another notch, to grow a little deeper, uh, to foster this very important biblical discipline of Christianity. While, uh, Arthur Wallace's book, um, God's Chosen Fast, is a key for your resources on this. Um, I'm getting him confused with Andrew Murray in his book on prayer, where Murray said, Many Christians cannot understand what is meant by much prayer. They sometimes hear spoken of. They can form no conception, nor do they feel the need of spending hours with God. And I think that that honestly is a fair representation of us in Primeville in 2023. Hours with God in a day in concentrated prayer probably isn't happening much in our church. We've announced and pressed for 13 years the importance of a corporate prayer meeting. And we meet every other week here at the church. And we get about 8 to 12 out of a church that's grown into the 400 range. You know, so what does that tell us about our urgency of prayer and corporate prayer as a church? Um, you know, recently, as I went into the new year, listening to a leadership podcast, and this guy said, hey, before you have your staff meeting and plan out the year and think about what 2023 looks like, get away with the Lord, spend the day with the Lord in prayer. And just the longing of my heart was for that. I even cleared our staff meeting, um, you know, started making the plans to go do it. And then forgot that I have a new member of our family that I'm in charge of taking care of. So my day with the Lord was, you know, caring for a two-year-old, basically. So, um, and sometimes that's all we can give, right, moms? Am I hearing an amen, moms out there? You're like, that's all I got, brother. I'm like, me too. Okay. Um, D.L. Uh, Moody said, and I think um, it goes on to say, rather, Murray says, but when the master says the experience of his people has confirmed Men of strong faith are men of much prayer. So there's got to be the hours, you guys. You read R.A. Torre, E.M. Bounds, Charles Spurgeon, Martin Luther. These great men who were used by the Lord were men of, of set-aside disciplined time of prayer. It seems so big. I know, guys, I'm a man just like you guys, right? I know exactly. I got affections. I got things pulling on me. And it's just taking that stuff. It's like working out, right? You're like, okay, I guess I got the membership and... I guess I got to wake up early and I got to drive down to the gym or I got to lace the shoes up and run out in the dark and in the cold and in the rain. And, you know, and isn't it grueling to go do it? But don't you do it? Somebody like, no, not at all. <laughs> shouldn't, shouldn't you do it? You know, like, okay. Can we at least agree that it's beneficial? You know, I don't know. Um, you know, we, we carve out that time. We get up a little earlier so that we can grow in bodily exercise, which profits a little, but godliness profits in all things. Um, D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, said, if you say, oh, fast when God lays it on my heart, you never will. Can I just submit right now? Right now, God's laying it on your heart. Enter in the shepherd 
of the flock right now. I'm an under shepherd and I'm bringing before you something that ought to be on your heart. Moody goes on to say, you are too cold and indifferent to take this yoke upon you. And so uh, there's, there's this concept that I've noticed as I've been reading this week. And the concept is how bound we are to this world and how disconnected we are from God. Murray said, while ordinary Christians imagine that all that is not positively forbidden and sinful is lawful for them and seek to retain as much as possible of this world with its property, its literature, its enjoyments. I I pause for a second because that was so convicting to me even yesterday that as Christians, don't we just be like, well, it's not forbidden in the Bible. It's not a sin. So I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it in excess, right? Rather than what are, is there anything that the Lord would just have me be disciplined for a minute and say, I'm going to hold off on that to seek the kingdom. And Murray goes on to say, the truly consecrated soul is as the soldier who carries only what he needs for the warfare, laying aside every weight as well as the easily besetting sin, afraid of entangling himself with the affairs of this life. He seeks to lead a Nazarite life as one specially set apart for the Lord and his service. Without much voluntary separation, even from what is lawful, no one will attain power in prayer. Elizabeth Elliot had her husband die back in the 1950s at the hands of the Alca natives in Ecuador. And uh, you guys know the story of Jim Elliot, I'm sure. But she wrote that one way to begin to see how vastly indulgent we usually are is to fast. It is a long day that is not broken by the usual three meals One finds out what an astonishing amount of time is spent in the planning, purchasing, preparing, eating, and cleaning up of the meals. And so for those of, I mean, if you have kids, you're still going to be involved in that a lot. It's like you're making the PB&J and you're like, you know, uh, because you still have to like, well, what are they going to eat? You know, Um, you're fasting too, kid. You know, Um, I was like a vacation. Um, But, uh, you know, there's so much, three hours a day at least, if not more, of the prepping, the planning, and the cleaning, and all of that sort of stuff. And so, uh, man, it's a time for us to detach uh, from the things of the world to seek after the things of God. So we're going to look through the Old Testament now. We're going to go pretty fast. We're going to skim, and uh, we're going to miss some things that are really more, really small mentions of fasting, but there's still good lessons in them. Uh, We're going to start in Leviticus chapter 16, one of the first mentions of fasting in the Old Testament, here on the Day of Atonement, we find the only prescribed fast that's necessary uh, for the Jews. And it was the fast of remembering our need for a savior from our sins and that there's one coming who's going to do that. We know the fulfillment of that is in Jesus. And so in Leviticus 16, we just see that there will be a, this shall be a statute forever for you in the seventh month. On the 10th day of the month, and here's this phrase that will be repeated, you shall afflict your souls and do not work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It's a Sabbath of solemn rest for you and you shall afflict your souls. It's a statute forever. So this phrase is mentioned twice. The CSB Bible says, you shall practice self-denial. NIV says you shall deny self. And that's what fasting is. It's denying self. As Paul says 
I discipline my body and I bring it under subjection. I don't let it have what it wants. The language in the Greek is that when he, when he brings it under subjection, it literally means I give my body the black eye. Like I'm bringing it into submission and saying, you're not the boss. Most of the time you call the shots, but not today. You need to remember somebody else is in charge around here. Okay. And it's a time of denying self. Self, you don't get what you want right now. How do you like that? And self just kind of goes like and cowers a little bit. And the more that you do that, the more you have a practice in your life of submitting to the Holy Spirit in all things. It's incredible how the Lord has designed that and worked that out. And so there's this Levitical day of atonement and a time where we deny ourselves so that we can, as, as the priest, as it says, the priest atones for us, cleanses for us and clean, cleans us from our sin. And that wouldn't that be a wonderful reason to fast? I don't got nothing to fast about. How about coming before the Lord and thanking him for salvation that's found in Jesus Christ and remembering how thankful you are for the cleansing that comes through the blood of the lamb. I'm so thankful it's worth not eating this morning or it's worth not eating at lunchtime. Uh, and so you have that on the day of atonement. It's really interesting that the law is pretty laid back when it comes to mandating a fast. That's the only time right there. So hopefully that helps you breathe a little in the, like we're not trying to be legalistic or ultra religious or anything like that. We're just saying, hey, as a church, we see what's going on in us, in our church, in our world. And we just like, we're desperate for God to move. And so that's what this is all about, right? So if you're desperate, no coffee, you know, the ice mocha frappuccino or whatever it is, like, that's good. I get it. Like, praise the Lord. Come pray with us, okay? Uh, now we have a story in Judges chapter 20. It's a great story that shows the power of fasting. And it, I, I just titled it in my notes, Israel versus the errant Benjamites, all right? Now, uh, Judges 20, 2 Chronicles 20, there's two chapters that have 20, it's chapters 20. They're great fasting passages. So here's the Judges 20. Can I set it up for you real quick? Oh, it's like, um, it's like trying to set up a Quentin Tarantino movie right now for you guys. So I'm reading this and I'm like, I need to take a shower after reading this because it's like, I feel dirty after seeing the sin of people in Judges chapters 19 and 20. So here's what happened. Okay. Scanning the room, looking for children, knowing my audience. Okay, here we go. You look like a man to me, so I'm going to kick it up a notch. No, I'm just kidding. All right, so you have a, a man who had a concubine, and he wasn't being very nice to her. Go figure, right? Um, and, and she ran off and went back to her family's home near Bethlehem. He missed her. He went after her. He spoke kind words to her. Her father kind of kept him around a little, wouldn't let the daughter go back home with the man. And so kept him for a number of days. And finally, the guy's like, look, I want to go home and I'm taking my wife with me, taking my concubine with me. So he heads out and he starts heading back home. As he's heading home, he comes into a village that he's not familiar with. He doesn't know anybody there. And so he starts setting up camp in the city square. He's going to camp out with his um, wife and his donkey. Okay. As they're starting to camp up, an old man comes in from the field and says, you guys can't sleep out here. It's not safe. Come into my home. So they go into the guy's home. And as they're in there, wicked men from the village surround them. They say, come out or let the man out here that we can know him carnally. Okay. It's very Sodom and Gomorrah-ish if you know that story. The, the host of the home says, no, no, don't do so wickedly. Have my daughter and his wife and you can have them. 
They end up taking the wife, abusing her all night long to where when the, old, when the man came out in the morning, it's just it's horrible stuff, you guys. If it wasn't in the Bible, I wouldn't just be sharing this with you. Uh, he comes out. She's at the door spread out, just exhausted. He just kind of says, get up. And she dies at his feet. He's a little peeved that this happened to his wife. So he cuts her up into, into pieces, sends her all throughout Israel. As Israel receives these parts of her body, they are enraged that such wickedness has happened in the nation of Israel. And it happened at the hands of sweet little Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin in the south. So they all say, Benjamin, we demand that you repent for this wickedness. And Benjamin says, no, not sorry. And so they say, we'll give you one more chance. And he said, no, not sorry. So the 11 tribes of Israel, you know, including Judah, they come down against Benjamin and they go to war with Benjamin. Now, Israel has 400,000 valiant, skilled, skilledly, use that in your next progress report, skilled warriors. Benjamin has 26,000. Last night as I was in bed, I'm like, there's got to be some website that compares numbers. I'm like, is there a website that has 400,000 dots? And then compares it with 26,000 dots just to help you get a perspective of the armies that are going against each other. And so, uh, and, and by the way, the 26,000, like it says, these guys are so good. They can, they're so good with their slingshot. They can hit a hair, you know, without missing, you know, they're just like super good. And so uh, Israel kind of comes down as like, we are going to own you if you don't repent. And we got 400,000 people. You're going down. And so they come out and you got to hand it to them. They actually pray. Now, the the layout of what unfolds is like this. In verse 18 of Judges 20, they pray. They say, Lord, should we go up to battle against the Benjamites, our brothers? And the Lord says, go up to battle against them. They go and they get their booty kicked. 400,000 against 26,000. Some 22,000 die in the battle. So they go back. And so they then pray. And then this time they pray longer. They pray until evening time. I don't know how many of you have spent those hours in prayer, but it's pretty impressive. Like, good on you. Good job. Good discipline. Pray until evening. That's good. Wouldn't you say like, yeah, God knows how to pray. Lord, should we go out and fight against Benjamin, our brother? And so the Lord says, go out and fight against them. They go out. They get worked again. They come back licking their wounds. And this time they are depressed and discouraged. And they're realizing that their 400,000 ain't nothing. And this time... They fast and they ask the Lord and they say, should we go up against Israel, our brother? And the Lord says, go, I'm going to give them into your hand. And they go and they win. They take out 25,100 of the Benjamite soldiers, leaving 900 left. And then the rest of the chapter is them just running around, kicking the rest of Benjamin's booty and hiney, you know, and, and, and winning the battle. But I hope you're catching the lesson in this, okay? And the lesson is whatever you're going through in your life. You know, it's great that you've been praying about it, man. Your marriage is hurting. You have the wayward child. You're not sure about your business venture, all these different things. There's struggles, there's hard stuff going on. And you go to coffee with your friend and you say, I have been praying about it. And your friend says, oh, I've been praying for you. And that's all good and great, but there hasn't been breakthrough. So you and your friends talk like, I'm going to earnestly pray for you on Monday, honey. And she's like, thank you so much. I'm going to be praying too. So Monday we set apart this day and we're praying and the marriage is still hurting or the wayward child is getting worse. What's going on or your addiction? It's not breaking. 
And I would just submit to you to take this next week and consider if the Lord is calling you to fast over these issues that you've got in your life. The Bible says and experience confirms both in my life and many people in this church that the Lord does tremendous breakthrough and wins the battle when his people fast. And you know what? It's all the better when you've got another hundred people around you fighting for you in prayer. These are dynamic, powerful times, my friend. R.A. Torrey wrote in his book, How to Pray. If we would pray with power, we should pray with fasting. This, of course, does not mean that we should fast every time we pray, but there are times of emergency or special crisis in work or in our individual lives when men of downright earnestness will withdraw themselves even from the gratification of natural appetites that would be perfectly proper under other circumstances, that they may give themselves up wholly to prayer. There's a peculiar power in such prayer. That's good alliteration. You can write that down. There's a peculiar, peculiar power in such prayer, okay? That's easy to remember. Every great crisis in life and work should be met in that way. There's nothing pleasing to God in our giving up a purely Pharisaic and legal way in which things are pleasant. But there is power in that downright earnestness and determination to obtain in prayer the things which we are sorely feeling our need. That leads us to put away everything, even the things in themselves most right and necessary that we may set our faces to find God and obtain blessing from him. Woo! Man, R.A. Torrey, writing in the late 1800s, and he's using Prineville talk. Men that are downright earnest about it. Is there anybody in here that you are downright earnest that there would be breakthrough in your life, in your habits, in your addictions? I'm, I'm not downright earnest yet. I mean, how bad do you want it? Well, not bad enough to not, you know, skip breakfast. It's like, I don't think you really want anything to change. That's just the reality of it. And Tori says it twice, like men that are downright earnest about seeing it change for good. And he uses another Prineville term when he says they sorely want it to happen. That's something from Polina maybe, right, Brent? You know, it's like, man, I'm, I'm sorely needing the Lord to work in my kid's life, you know? You know, uh, and so guys, like let the Lord draw that out of us, that type of uh, urgency through fasting. Uh, Israel under Samuel is an example of this in first Samuel seven, two through 13. For the sake of time, I wish that I could just I've got all of it out. I've got it all highlighted. I just don't have time to read it verse by verse with you guys. But Israel, you guys, they they had had the ark um, stolen by the Philistines, their their arch nemesis army the philistines were always the bad guys uh, in the days of samuel and uh and they had received the ark back and just the lord did a work in israel where they confessed their sins and they fasted and they wept and because they cried out to the lord in such a way samuel interceded for them and prayed for them as a prophet and the lord did such a work in them that the pharisees uh, i always want to call them the pharisees the philistines were never a problem for them again in, during the uh, ministry of Samuel the prophet. There was this great time of victory. And during that time, it says in verse 12 of second, uh, 1 Samuel 7, that Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, thus far the Lord has helped me. 
So the Philistines were subdued and they did not come anymore into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. So there's such a victory that they said, you know, what? we need to make some sort of stone of remembrance so that we recall God's victory that he's brought here this day. And when he heard our prayer and our fasting, and so they called that Ebenezer. You know, we just came out of the Christmas season and watched the Christmas story a few times. I actually read the Christmas story by, for, by Charles Dickens for the first time. It's actually a pretty quick read. Not too bad, actually. And uh, what's Scrooge's first name? Ebenezer, right? And uh, Ebenezer means the stone of help. And they set it up to say, we got to remember that the Lord was our help. I think it's where Robert Robinson got the lyric when he wrote, come thou fount of every blessing. And he said, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. You know, he was a guy that was, was, wrote this in his young Christian days that he would look back on that for the rest of his life and say, God has been faithful to me. Times of fasting, you guys, I think of every year there was something paramount that happened every year that's an Ebenezer of God moving and working in my life, in our church, providing in incredible ways, doing breakthrough. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China. He's famous for kind of leading that missionary movement over there where the Americans or the British would go over and then they would adopt Chinese culture entirely, growing the Fu Manchu, getting the top knot, wearing the dress, you know, dress, I know Moomoo is totally something different, but I think he had a Moomoo for more casual occasions. Um, just teasing. And, uh, and so Hudson Taylor, an incredible missionary, started China Inland Missions. His son wrote a great book about him called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secrets. But Hudson Taylor said this, In Shanxi, I found Chinese Christians who were accustomed to spend time in fasting and prayer. They recognized that this fasting, which so many dislike, which requires faith in God, since it makes one feel weak and poorly, is really a divinely appointed means of grace. Perhaps the greatest hindrance to our work is our own imagined strength. And in fasting, we learn what poor, weak creatures we are, dependent on a meal of meat for the little strength which we are so apt to lean upon. So fasting, we realize that, man, you know what? It was never about the meat. And it's so funny because by Friday when you break the fast, I mean, you are stoked. So many good soups coming in, so many good breads. It's just totally awesome. And you're like, finally, I'm in paradise again. And you forgot that over those five days, your, your tummy shrunk. You got nothing there. And so you're like, yes. That's all I got. And you realize, food, you're a horrible God. Like you deliver for that fat. That's how I feel every Thanksgiving. Like I didn't even eat breakfast or lunch so I can cram it all in at Thanksgiving time. And it's like, it's over. That's it. Ah. And it just reminded like, I'm sorry, Lord, you're my God. I forgot. You know, you get the gravy off your, you know. David fasted in 2 Samuel chapter 12 in his adultery with Bathsheba in his failure. He knew he screwed up. He was a mess crying out to God for forgiveness and mercy. And the Lord heard that cry of contrition. Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20, he led a fast. His nickname afterwards was Jehosha Skinny. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. Man, I'm trying to deliver a punchline and you stutter. That's not good. Jehosha Skinny. Second Chronicles 20, it's, it's probably my favorite passage 
on fasting in the Old Testament. Okay, let me set it up for you. Don't have time to read it. So bear with me. Okay, Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah. He lives in Jerusalem. Three armies are coming up against him from the east. Those of us that were just in Israel, we remember the Dead Sea, remember En Gedi, where David hid in the caves. These three armies are in En Gedi. They're close to Jerusalem. There's three million men in those armies, Moab, Ammon, and the other armies. They're coming. They're going to surround Jehoshaphat and his army. He knows they're doomed. They don't stand a chance. And so Jehoshaphat proclaimed a fast for the nation. Okay. In his proclaiming of the fast, he prays this prayer that you guys, you got to memorize it. You got to own it. It's been foundational for my wife and I in decisions that we have to make or battles that we're coming up against. And he says this, Oh Lord, we are surrounded on every side and we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Anybody there right now in your time in your life? I'm surrounded by every side. My work is coming against me. My projects are late. You know, my marriage is struggling. My kids are stagnant in their walk with the Lord and they're in rebellion right now. You know, our business is hurting. We've got, we're bound, you know, we're bound for bankruptcy. This nation's going to heck in a handbasket. All of these things. And I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And as he proclaimed a fast, a prophet stood up. And he said this, he said, you know what? The word has come for you, Judah, that you will not need to fight in this battle, but position yourself and see the hand of the Lord. And I believe that is a word for us every time we come to fast as a church, whatever it is that's in front of us, that's causing anxiety or causing us to swim in our bed at night. We're not restful. We're eating anxious bread. We know that we've got this struggle and we're not winning. Whatever it is, hey, come to fast, position yourself, and you will not need to fight in this battle. The Bible says it and experience confirms it. I have come so many times into the Monday of fast and I'm just like, you know, chewing my fingernails down to the nub because I'm like, there are things that, you know what, if this, if this goes on, it's going to, it's going to end the church or it's going to end the friendship. It's going to end the relationship or they're going to leave the church or this or that. And as we come by the end of the week, the Lord's already taken care of it. People are approaching, repenting or putting on your heart to go and repent and no, you know, no battle is needed. Just healing that takes place. So that's a word for you. And so what did the prophet then say? He said, okay, you position yourself in prayer and fasting. We're going to send the worship team out in front of the army. And they're going to go out towards the Ammonites, the Moabites, and all the other armies. And as they go out, they're going to worship and sing praise to the Lord. And as the worship band played for Judah, the people turned their swords against themselves. The Ammonites, the Moabites, they all killed themselves and Israel didn't even have to fight in it. The Lord does that a few times in the Bible. If you read it, by the way, it just takes the armies, just turn and destroy themselves. And then it says that it took the people of Judah three days to go and collect all of the plunder from those armies. That's a word for you. Hear me out as your pastor. Come and lay your life down before the Lord in fasting and prayer. You won't need to fight. Watch the Lord fight for you, and it'll be like days of gathering the, the plunder from, uh, from the victory that the Lord brings for you. Anybody excited about that? Like, no, I'm good. Yeah, right? Pretty excited about this. There's a lot going on, you guys. Uh, praise the Lord. Ezra is a great example. 
Uh, we see uh, two separate themes here in one verse. Ezra 8, 21, okay, says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions, okay? Great verse, packed, packed with so much, okay? Number one, fasting is a way by which we humble ourselves. Man, we are so proud. We are so, I can make it on my own. We are so haughty. We are so, I've got this under control. And fasting is a way that we lay down everything that we are and say, I got nothing. You are everything. Be my all in all. It's a way of humbling ourselves, of, of laying down our haughty spirit in humility before the Lord. We do special times of that during our gatherings of just humbling ourselves before the Lord. And then the second thing we see in Ezra 8, 21, fasting is a means of receiving direction. And man, I'm just always so grieved when I see people make big life decisions. And I just know that they went out and did what they thought was right in their own eyes and they didn't get any counsel, you know, and it's just grievous and there. It just always ends in just destruction and a wreck. And I'm just, I speak counsel of, oh man, just here's a word for you. If you just get counsel from some wise brothers and sisters, let them speak into your life before you make these big decisions. We're not telling you what to do. We just want to speak. You know, we got a, we got a new vehicle over Christmas break. And one thing that I love about the vehicle we got my wife is that it shows you your blind spots. If there's a vehicle in your blind spot, still be driving along and there'll be someone right here. Remember you, you used to have to do this. You don't have to do that anymore. In fact, they discourage it. No, I'm kidding. You still want to check your blind spots, right? But over on the mirror, there's this little orange thing that glows that tells you there's a car in your blind spot. And that's what receiving counsel is and going before the Lord and fasting and prayer and waiting on the Lord before you make these big decisions is just people that love you just say, hey, I don't know if you've thought about this, but here's something that could happen right here. Like you're bound for a collision. Okay. And that's what these times of fasting are. Now, I love also this phrase that we sought the Lord the right way for ourselves for our little ones and for our possessions. And man, whenever you're buying a home, selling a home, vehicles, uh, you know, going off to college, what direction do I go before you propose, before you say yes to the proposal, whatever it is, these big things, take a meal and fast on it. Take a day and fast on it. Seek the Lord the right way for your family and the direction that you might be going. John Piper wrote, They were hungry enough for God's leading that they wanted to say it with the hunger of their bodies and not just the hunger of their hearts. In Nehemiah chapter one, you see Nehemiah hearing about the destruction of his hometown, Jerusalem, that the temple has been destroyed, that the wall lays in ruins. And then he, on top of that, and all that implies is that the people of Judah, so many have died, so many are in prison uh, so many were um, led away into captivity by the Babylons. And now he's in you know, um, an exile with the Persians. He's a cupbearer to the king. He's essentially a slave. And as he hears about the destruction of Jerusalem and what, you know, it just destroyed, he begins to weep and he begins to cry. And he begins to be in a place where he can't even eat. He starts fasting and he cries out to the Lord repentance for the sins of him and his fathers that led them to a place of their whole city being destroyed, the whole nation being led away captive. He's grieving. And then in chapter two, you have the king calling him for a sip of wine. 
And you know how it is. If you, I'm a crybaby, right? We call the Rogers, we're the living tear ducts, right? We're just always just all emotional and beclept, right? And, uh, and here's Nehemiah and he's fasting, he's crying out to the Lord and he's weeping. And the king says, hey, bring me some wine. And you know, you got to, you know, and he comes in. And if you are uh, the king and your cupbearer who checks the poison content of your cup is weeping and is all disheveled, you know, and he hands you the cup, you want to ask what's going on, right? And the King Artaxerxes does this. He says, um, so what's going on? Why are you all crying and weeping and stuff? Like, did you put a little something, something in my beverage and you know it's coming down on you? Or, you know, he's like, no, I heard about my people and the wall and the, all this and I'm just grieving. And, and the king says, hey, how about this? How about I send you back to go do repair effort over there? So your people can return. In fact, I'll send you back. I'll send you the money to do it. I'll send you all the materials to do it. And I'll send you a letter with my stamp of approval on it that this is the king's business. Right? That kind of stuff happens after you pray and fast. And so later on in Nehemiah in chapter 9, they're all there after the project is complete. And they take out the Bible and they open it up and they start reading it. It's kind of like this. There's a platform and they begin to read it in front of the people. And as they're reading it, people begin to uh, have, have a revival take place. They, uh, and so let's read what Nehemiah chapter 9 says. Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting, sackcloth, and with dust on their heads. Then those of Israel lineage separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquity of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God for one fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshiped the Lord. And so that's what we call in the new Testament, a revival. When people are gathered together and you read from the word of the law and people shout out yes and amen. And we believe the word of God. And then they start confessing their sins and the sins of their fathers, saying, you know what? My granddaddy and my daddy's daddy and my daddy's daddy daddy and all these people, we've been doing all this stuff and it's just been wickedness and idolatry. And it's led us to this point of destruction. And you know what? No more. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's a revival, essentially. It's what's happening in Nehemiah. E.M. Bounds writes, The revival whose results are gracious and abiding must spring from the spiritual contact of pastor and church with God. A season of fasting and prayer, of deep humiliation and confession are the condition from which a genuine and powerful work springs. And that's what we're hoping for in two weeks, you guys, or a week from tomorrow, is that we're we're fostering and providing a condition where a revival can spring from. There's a fast led by Esther to deliver her people. We're going to have the worship team come back up um, because we are done for the day. And my time is uh, far spent. Uh, So Esther has an incredible story of um, the, the stopping of a genocide through fasting and prayer. Hers was a total three-day fast, no food, no water. And uh, the king wakes up in the middle of the night, asks for the, the history of the Jews, reads it, finds out Haman is wicked and is trying to lead you know, the final solution against the Jews like Hitler did. And he ends up, by the end of the night, the one that was planning the killing of the Jews uh, is hanging on the gallows that he built. Something the Lord does through times of fasting and prayer. Last year, we went through Isaiah 58. It was the theme of our fast. You can read verses six through 11 um, and you'll see incredible stellar results from fasting and prayer. 
Um, that was our that was our outline last year of our fast. Daniel was a guy that fasted, and through his fasting and repentance of his sin, the Lord gave him specific prophecies. Uh, one in Daniel chapter nine that told the exact day that the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, would ride into Jerusalem. Uh, and, and, and then lay his life down for the sins of the country uh, to the day that prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, so much to say today. I'm going to close with Joel. And in Joel chapter two, there's this great phrase about, um, about how to fast as a church or how to get a corporate fast going. It's in verse 15 that Joel says, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast. That's basically what's happening right now. We're consecrating a fast for a week from tomorrow. You're hearing a little bit of a, you know, happening right now. Someone's kind of trying to wake you up and get ready and put it on your calendar. Call a sacred assemble. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and the nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. So a few questions are answered here. Um, Are children allowed? Children are allowed. Sometimes they kind of end up running around and going downstairs and playing. Um, Little young ones that can read, read the scriptures with us. It's super special. So the question is asked, how important is this? Well, if you're getting married that day, feel free to show up in your tux or your wedding gown. Like, Pretty important, okay? Uh, It goes on to say, let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. And so you guys can go ahead and set your things aside. One final quote from Murray in his book. Jesus tells us, if you have faith, nothing shall be impossible to you. Let this glorious promise encourage you to pray much. Is the prize not worth the price? I'm gonna read that again. Is the prize not worth the price? Shall we not give up all to follow Jesus in the path he opens to us here? Shall we not, if need be, fast? Shall we not do anything that neither the body nor the world around hinder us in our great life work? Having intercourse with our God in prayer that we may become men of faith whom he can use in his work of saving the world. I mean, I don't know how big, oh, I just dropped my mic pack there. Sorry, guys. You know, how big of an issue is this? What's at stake here? Well, God has included us in his rescue plan to save the world from their sins, to save them from an eternity of hell and the wrath of God being poured out upon them. He's included us in that and that he has made us the mouthpieces so people should know how to be saved and how to enjoy God forever. It's a big deal. We're talking about big implications here. And again, is the prize not worth the price? We're going to go ahead and bow our heads and set our things aside. And, and just during this song, it's, it's a good anthem that we're going to close with today. I just, before you might stand up and even start singing, I just want you to, will you do me a favor and just for like the first verse or two, pray to the Lord and bring this before the Lord, just between you and him and just say to the Lord, Lord, I'm hearing about fasting today and all of this that's going on. And my default is to be like, oh, I'm really busy that week. I'm sorry. I can't be there. Or, 
Um, my default is to just be like, no, I really like food. And, and I just uh, would encourage you to just give that to the Lord and, and ask him. Say, Lord, if you would have me give up food for a day or a number of days, would you just, you're going to have to work in my heart. Show me what that looks like. I just rest in that you're going to show me and you're going to give me the desire to do it. I just want to encourage you. There's many times that I, I kind of go into the fast and I'm thinking like midweek, I'll probably break it with something and maybe do like a meal a day. And that midweek comes along and the Lord's moving so powerfully that I just don't even want to stop. That's often how the Lord works. And just ask the Lord, Lord, just you're going to have to work in me to desire that. I don't have that desire. I can't comprehend hours of prayer next week. Just, you're going to have to do something in me. Take me that next notch deeper in knowing you and loving you. And maybe once the Lord just, you've given that to the Lord, maybe some of you, the Lord's already put on your heart what that's to look like. And then I would just invite you to stand and close in this final song with us together. But first, let's just bring all this before the Lord and just hear from him. I met with a guy at Tasty Treat yesterday for uh, probably two hours. And while we were scarfing down a Roundup burger, we are talking about fasting the whole time. And he just said, I hear you. I need to do this for my kids. They are in, there's, they're a desperate case. And there's darkness around our home. And we need breakthrough in that. And this maybe the Lord would work in you today where you would say, I hear you, Lord. I'm, I'm in. I'm in. And then once you've just given it to the Lord, why don't you stand with us as we close in the chorus?